helping pharmacists grow themselves, their business, and driving outcomes. This is Pharmacy Now. Welcome to our special episode of Pharmacy Now. I am Vera, your host today. Uh, my role here at Tabula Rasa is Executive Vice President of Pharmacy Provider Unit. I lead the charge with our 10,000 community pharmacists here serving their patients and their communities. By background, I am a pharmacist as well, and I have worked multiple roles all within the community pharmacy space. And today I'm honored to have our esteemed guest, Dr. Champ, who will be helping us understand what is greatly plaguing our communities and worldwide, our, the COVID-19 crisis that we're all in. Welcome, Dr. Champ. Thank you, Farrah. I'm glad to be with you today. Excellent. And could you please share a little bit about your background and what your current role is at Tabula Rasa? Sure. Uh, I'm a physician by training. Um, I started out training in pathology and then I transitioned into family medicine. Uh, after that, I spent uh, 15 years in rural Appalachia doing, well, whatever you think of a country doctor doing, that's pretty much what I did, which is everything. Um, and during that time, um, I, I learned a lot and grew a lot uh, in my uh, professional life and then uh, went from there to uh, training, right, taking a faculty position in uh, St. Louis, where I did geriatric training for a number of years. Uh, I joined uh, Tabula Rasa uh, about 10 years ago, uh, currently in the role of Chief Medical Officer. In this role, I get the privilege of, of helping our healthcare team um, with a number of different projects. But as of late, we've been spending quite a bit of time and energy understanding the um, impact of the uh, coronavirus uh, on our uh, act activity that uh, at the company and our clients uh, that we serve and how best to cope with this um, in a very rapidly changing environment. And thank you so much for sharing your background um, and, in, and and how you support us is, is very much appreciated from all of us. Can you start with the basics of what is COVID-19? Well, a couple of technical things to understand first about this. Um, COVID-19 represents the disease uh, that is caused by the novel coronavirus. A novel coronavirus is the term we use to describe a very specific virus called SARS-CoV-2 because the, the novel coronavirus is, is new, but obviously it's novel. And then um, it's in the same family of viruses. There's a number of other coronaviruses. Uh, one of the typical ones that we are familiar with, uh, been around for a couple of decades, is the uh, SARS virus um, that was problematic uh, in 2003, 2004, uh, which did for severe acute respiratory syndrome. So these viruses are related um, in the current novel coronavirus uh, has taken on the same technical name, but the disease that it causes is not called SARS, it's called COVID-19 COVID specifically. And so when we refer to the virus, we call it SARS-CoV-2. When we refer to the disease, we call it COVID-19. Thank you. And then 
Is it the same origin of SARS or where did it come from? Um, good question. Um, the current belief is that the, the viruses uh, in this family are what we call zoonotic. Um, zoonotic means that they originated uh, in, in animals and then were able at some point to be transferred to humans and then proceed among humans in a, uh, a person-to-person transmission. The particular virus probably originated in bats like the SARS virus did uh, and many others, then uh, traveled from that to um, other animals. Um, and then it was first detected uh, in uh, China where it was felt to be uh, part of what is known as the wet market where live animals are being sold uh, for food. And uh, by the, the close interaction of those animals that became, became transmitted among them and then among uh, workers and others who were involved with that market. So that's the understanding of, of uh, where it came from. Uh, and being a zoonotic virus, it's, it's like a lot of other diseases in the virus that, that we're familiar with that uh, originated in, in, in the animal world and then eventually became a, a human host. Interesting. And, and so for, for this disease, we're, we're hearing a lot of um, people safeguarding it and wiping down things a lot more vigilantly than, than any other flu epidemic that we have seen. And we've heard issues where people are saying that it is the virus stays alive on metal surfaces what are, and other things much longer than what we've seen before. Is this true? And how is it really spread? And what's the dormancy rate of, of this virus? Well, good question. I think there is a lot of um, uh, concern that's been expressed about this and a lot of precautions that are being taken. Um, although currently we don't have any evidence of any spread or transmission uh, directly from surfaces. Um, the spread is, is almost 100% through what we would call droplet, uh, respiratory droplets that come from one person uh, and then transmitted directly to another, either through um, touch through the hands, for example, um, or uh, directly through the air uh, to their um, nose, mouth, or eyes. So the, the virus is transmitted in droplets that are uh, carry the virus to an, a new host uh, in their eyes, nose, or mouth in the mucosal membranes. Uh, and that's where it uh, begins the infectious process in the new host. It, it could theoretically um, exist on a surface, say um, a door handle, where it may stay for a matter of hours um, in, a, in a state that could be transmitted to somebody's hand and then those hands touch their face or their mouth uh, and transmit the virus, virus that way. Uh, just that we don't have um, any direct evidence that that's actually happening. But who wants to take that chance, right? So. Um, the, the, the precautions of, of surface cleaning uh, are, are generally quite appropriate, and they would be appropriate for, for influenza, too, if, if people were uh, concerned about that as they are about uh, the corona, novel coronavirus. And we've heard a lot about people saying um, there's clearly news about test kits being available, but yet people are told to quarantine. When is it best to... to to delineate between the two and, and, and why quarantine? 
Um, a couple more technical definitions here. Uh, well, let's look at it at the spectrum. Uh, on one hand, uh, we have what we call isolation. Isolation is what's applied to somebody who already has the disease and are considered to be infectious. And so isolation is a, is a technical term that d defines the um, infectious disease control uh, around that person. Um, I'm not going to go into the detail on that, but that's what would happen, for example, in a hospital room uh, where they'd be isolated. Quarantine is designed for people who do not have disease but are suspected of having it. Um, and so that's the public health action. Uh, where isolation is, uh, is more of a medical procedure, uh, quarantine is more of a public health procedure where um, people who may be infected but not confirmed are um, kept apart from uh, others so that if they turn out to be infected, they will not be transmitting that directly. A little further on the scale would be what we call self-quarantine. Quarantine by itself is um, it, it, it enforced and uh, by public health authorities. So it is a, um, a public health policy that in most jurisdictions actually had police power behind it, so they can enforce that. Um, moving up the, the spectrum a little bit, self-quarantine is voluntary, um, where individuals will separate themselves from others to prevent uh, transmission of the virus, um, but it's not being forced upon them. Um, and that may be a little bit looser during that time. They are watching themselves, looking for signs or symptoms of any disease that could be developing. And then further on the spectrum of that is um, what we have come to know as social distancing, where we aren't uh, completely apart from other people, but we are not um, engaging in the usual practices of, of physical contact, um, and we are avoiding, for example, crowds and uh, trying to stay distant to prevent um, prevent transmission of the virus. So if you look at it upon the, at the spectrum from social um, distancing all the way up to isolation, you can see how they fit. So Dr. Champ, how would you, how would you rate this against influenza as it relates to symptoms or, or, or even rates of death? Well, that's a good way to think about it because um, we're pretty familiar with the influenza virus and the, and the damage it causes uh, in our country and in the world. Um, and on one hand, you could look at it and say, well, you know, 450,000 people are going to die of influenza this year, uh, which is very many more than uh, you know, we've seen, for example, in China with the uh, novel coronavirus. So what what's the problem? Um, and the uh, the answers are, are um, pretty significant and deal around the uh, what we call the case fatality rate. The case fatality rate is how, a measure of how deadly uh, a disease is. In this case, for coronavirus, there's a lot of um, speculation about what the case fatality rate is. For example, with influenza, the case fatality rate is generally regarded as about 0.1%, or about one person in a thousand that gets influenza um, will will die from it. Um, in a novel coronavirus, um, the case fatality rate been reported, well, in China, for example, about uh, three, three and a half percent, which is, you know, 35 times the deadly as influenza. In the U.S. and other places, it's been reported closer to 2%. Um, and most experts now think that it's probably going to land somewhere around 1%. And the reason for that 
is that um, when we figure the percentage, the, the denominator is based on the number of cases that we know about. But the problem with the novel coronavirus is there are many more cases out there that have not been detected. And so the death rate is, is being uh, sort of mathematically inflated because we don't have the right denominator. And so once, once all the cases are actually understood and collected, I think we'll see the death rate drop to somewhere around 1%. Uh, which is much better than 3%. But if you think about it, 1% is still 10 times more deadly than the flu. And uh, the possibility, if, if this thing goes unchecked, of, of, of uh, fatalities could be uh, actually as, greater, uh, as great as or greater than the influenza uh, virus that we currently experience. So um, it, it is a deadly condition, deadly disease. Um, but it's important to note that the it's most deadly in a certain population. So on, on average, about 80% of people who contact the virus will have mild disease and will not need to be hospitalized. It'll be, uh, they'll have a cough, they'll have symptoms that are flu-like in nature. Um, they will have um, maybe a runny nose, fatigue, fever, um, but they'll recover in uh, anywhere from two to four weeks. Uh, 15% of them will be seriously ill, sick enough to be in the hospital. Um, but the vast majority of them, about uh, 90, 95% of those will also recover. But then another 5% will become critically ill. And they'll be uh, sick enough to be in the intensive care unit, many of them on respirators or ventilators. And th those folks uh, have a very high mortality rate. And those folks tend to be uh, people who are older, older than 60 or 65, uh, or they have underlying medical conditions, chronic lung disease, chronic kidney disease, heart disease, things that weaken them um, before they even had the virus. Uh, so that's the population that we're most concerned about in terms of uh, trying to protect uh, as well as try to find treatment for. Wonderful. And is there a, there, is there a certain symptom where if someone's self-isolating or, or self-monitoring, that would lead someone to say, this is the time I need to go to the hospital or as healthcare providers, letting their patients know it's time to certainly go to the hospital regardless of, of testing results or what have you. The most common symptom uh, in the novel coronavirus is fever. And um, at the time of diagnosis, only 40 or 50% may show that. Um, but by the time they are hospitalized, about 90% will. The second most common symptom is cough. And shortness of breath, and that excuse me, that's because uh, this virus causes pneumonia. It's a type of pneumonia that is uh, can be very rapid uh, and uh, infect the lungs in such a way that the, the the air exchange is limited. And so, shortness of breath is a very prominent feature in uh, in the uh, symptoms. And so, if fever and shortness of breath uh, develop, and these usually will develop within five to six days um, uh, or, or a week of uh, becoming infected, uh, that would be the time I would definitely uh, contact a healthcare provider uh, and ask about evaluation or testing. And how would you best protect yourself, our patients, the communities from COVID-19? The uh, message that had been uh, transmitted, I think, around our country is it, uh, most commonly uh, it's it been very, uh, very valid in terms of 
both public health and infectious disease control. Uh, and that message has two pillars to it. Uh, the first is um, trying to keep the virus uh, away from ourselves um, by what the term social distancing. And basically, if we don't touch anybody or don't hang around anybody who has the virus, then uh, our chance of, of getting it is very low. And, uh, and the opposite side of that, if we were to happen to have the virus, our chance of passing it on to somebody else also becomes lower. Uh, so that, that's uh, an extremely important pillar um, in the uh, management of this uh, pandemic. The, the um, it, I think, uh, not um, not easy for some people in our society to understand the value and the importance of that, uh, and some have outright ignore it. Uh, but I think it uh, it is a social responsibility we have for each other now, um, particularly since uh, the transmission uh, rates and the transmission patterns are still being studied. We don't know all that, that we need to know yet about this virus. And so we have to take an extra careful approach in this matter of social distancing. The second pillar is really about hygiene, uh, which is hygiene of our, our own selves with uh, cleaning our hands and, um, and not touching our faces. Um, cleaning our hands um, involves mostly just open water. Uh, so open water is very, very effective in this. As long as we spend 20 seconds, um, the uh, 20 seconds, so the viral particle and bacteria for that matter um, ha, ha, are covered with a coating that's combined of lipoproteins. And um, 20 seconds is uh, what it takes to dissolve, for, for soap to dissolve fat. Um, and when that happens, the, the, the wall of the viral particle breaks down and they die. So um, there, you would think, well, it's a magical 20 seconds versus 10 seconds. Well, it's not magical, but it, it definitely, uh, 10 seconds has some effect, 20 seconds has almost 100% effect. Uh, if, it, if the virus is exposed to regular soap detergent, doesn't have to be antibacterial, doesn't have to be any special uh, thing other than soap. Um, so cleaning your hands, uh, the way I like to describe it is that uh, every, every summer we make salsa at our house and um, when we are done cutting the hot peppers, you can bet that we wash our hands very carefully before we touch our contacts. Um, Wise. And, and so that's the kind of, of washing we're talking about. Yeah, for, a minimum of 20 seconds, a lot of different ways. Pick your song and sing it for 20 seconds. Um, and, and that's very effective. Uh, along, along the same line of personal hygiene is the uh, not touching your face and eyes. Um, many studies have been done showing how unconsciously we do that up to 20 times a minute. And that can be very common. Um, and so be de developing a, um, uh, a sensitivity to that and trying to avoid it is, is also very important. Um, and then the last, um, the last uh, aspect of that hygiene really has to do with uh, uh, avoiding contaminated surfaces. And uh, we, we talked about that a little bit earlier, that the virus can live on different surfaces. Um, it is uh, uh, still being studied about what, uh, how long it can live in different surfaces. But generally speaking, the harder the surface, like a steel or metal surface, uh, the, the virus tends to live a little longer uh, on those surfaces versus um, something that's softer like cardboard or paper.
Interesting. You would think one things with pores would have a more of an ab absorption of it, but fascinating. On the the effect of hygiene and social distancing and protecting your community, what I've seen is a lot of our pharmacies have done very interesting and unique things that have are allowing and preserving their their patient population, their community. As you know that. Um, a lot of them have been deemed as essential healthcare workers or essential employees, and therefore keeping their doors open and, and serving their communities. Um, so they have deployed things such as even having um, special times where the most susceptible patients can come within the pharmacies or ensuring that they are or providing curbside pickup for their prescriptions so that not everyone's being exposed to it. So um, outside of just you know, self-quarantining or, or navigating these tricky waters, our pharmacists are serving the front line, trying unique things to best serve and preserve their communities. It's been truly an amazing thing to, to watch them mobilize and adapt so nimbly and, and quickly to this. With that being said, a lot of things, as you are aware, get start getting perpetuated in the media as far as, and, and especially now with with media, it's a, it's a great thing and a and not so great thing in that it, we spread information or misinformation rather at a, a, a fast pace. Um, we've heard things such as um, children can't get the coronavirus or um, you, you can, um, drinking silver will prevent the coronavirus. Can you address some of the misinformations that you may have heard out there and, and help our communities start getting the right bit of information to their, their patients or, and their loved ones. Sure. Um, and I, I want to reemphasize that you said fair about the, the role that pharmacists can play in, in this, because, um, the, the opportunity to give out, you know, truthful, factual information to people who are really hungry for it. Uh, I think pharmacists have a fantastic opportunity for that and, and a very important role to play in the community. I think that, um, you know, president Trump, said as much himself uh, this past week where he identified pharmacists as uh, being on the front line for this and becoming more and more important in the in the healthcare system uh, and this is giving a wonderful time and opportunity for that to happen um, so arming pharmacists with good information is a part of what we're about um, so let's address some of those questions that you raised i think that there are uh, a good deal of uh, misinformation, uh, internet memes that are going around, um, and some just flat-out mercenary activities that uh, I think need to be called out. Um, so, for example, and, and, and let me preface this by saying that I, I certainly understand that in a situation like a pandemic that we're in, where people are feeling helpless, afraid, anxious maybe, um, anything that they can do that will take action uh, to help feel like they are doing their part to defend themselves against this unseen enemy. I think it's a strong uh, human reaction. So I don't have any criticism for people who are looking for home remedy, who are looking for anything they can do to lessen their chances. I think that that's legitimate and it's, it's part of our shared humanness. And so I, uh, my criticism is not toward that. Uh, my criticism would lie on where um, that becomes something that is... Um, uh, taking advantage of or um, giving false hope uh, when there's really not uh, appropriate to do that. So, for example, 
um, flushing the water out by drinking virus, uh, excuse me, flushing the virus out by drinking water uh, more frequently had been promoted. The idea that if, if a virus lands in your mouth and you're drinking water every 10 minutes or every five minutes, you, you basically flush it down to the stomach where the stomach acid will kill it and uh, you're safer. Um, the, the problem is that we have really no evidence to support that. Uh, the concept is nice and drinking water is good for all of us. Um, and so it's not a harmful thing, um, but it's probably not helpful. Um, another um, another remedy that was promoted in, in the internet this week that I saw had to do with uh, the virus's sensitivity to heat. Um, uh, it's been uh, identified that the viruses will not survive a, a temperature of 133 degrees. Um, and so uh, one enterprising gentleman uh, decided to promote a concept of, of heating the air that goes into our sinuses because um, if we can, that's where the virus lives, according to him. And so if we can heat the air that goes into our sinuses, it will um, um, kill the virus and we'll be home free. Um, the problem is that, uh, and so holding a, a hairdryer against your face uh, and spraying your face with a, a water mixture was the answer that was proposed. Um, and again, that may feel good uh, for a short period of time, but uh, we know that even at 130 degrees, uh, a 10 second exposure will cause a third degree burn. So I don't think anybody wants to do a third degree burn on their sinuses. That sounds bad to me. It sounds terrible. Uh, uh, so we're not recommending uh, that either um, on a number of different fronts, but that one could be harmful. Um, and another popular um, remedy that's been promoted is the, the uh, drinking or otherwise taking in of uh, colloidal silver. Uh, silver had been around for uh, well centuries, really, in terms of our understanding of its antibacterial, anti-viral, um, even anti-mold effects. Um, is that because the silver ion uh, is toxic uh, to microorganisms. And so if silver is being is used in uh, a lot of preparations, particularly skin preparations and uh, ointments, uh, burn victims, etc. Silver is very useful. Um, unfortunately, we have no real evidence that taking silver on an oral basis uh, will, will be of any benefit. There is, again, the potential harm in this because uh, silver does accumulate in the body and it causes a, a condition known as agerosis, uh, where it deposits in the skin and other tissues. So um, this is, uh, in fact, uh, the FDA this past week, uh, actually last week, um, sent a cease and desist letter to seven companies uh, around the country that have been promoting silver as a treatment for, uh, for um, novel coronavirus. So we would uh, advise, advise against that as well. Interesting. Thank you so much. I mean, like you said, a lot of them are, are not that harmful, but some of them, they are. So I appreciate you um, being the steward and helping us promote some of the information to go out to our pharmacists and pharmacies. Um, and as well, you said, I, um, I, let me say one more thing um, uh, that uh, it's often promoted and, and that's the use of vitamin supplements and other supplements. Um, I think that uh, this is one of those situations where um, we're pretty sure it will not harm. Um, we're not sure if it'll help. 
Um, but obviously, you know, everybody needs vitamin C. Uh, everybody needs other nutrients and vit vitamins that uh, uh, they may or may not be getting through their diet. Um, we're not promoting that, but uh, it's one of those things that probably isn't going to help, I mean, or hurt at least. And that, um, and that goes to the point of what I really wanted to say is that uh, the best thing we can do in our individual life that is trying to keep ourselves strong and healthy. Um, in, in, that, um, in doing that, we can promote our own uh, safety and immune system uh, and, and have the best uh, opportunity to uh, fight against the virus if we should get it. Absolutely. And that's certainly where pharmacists can play that role is ensuring that they are staying healthy, taking care of themselves and, and taking the medications that they were prescribed and, and making sure that they are adherent to their medications and that because of some of the, 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 the chaos and the unrest that, that remains that we're not neglecting what we know will help um, our patients stay healthy and um, which is compliance to the right medications. So absolutely. As we think about pharmacists and, and playing um, a role within the community, we know that one out of every four vaccinations in the U.S. are, 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 are performed by a pharmacist. And on that note, any updates on uh, the vaccine and the science behind that as well? Um, there are probably a dozen different companies at this point uh, working on the vaccine very uh, diligently. Um, I think the general understanding is that this will not, there's one that seems to be on track to try to be done within a year. Most of the time, vaccines uh, are going to be uh, 18 to 24 months out. Um, there definitely will be a vaccine. Um, we don't know how effective it'll be, um, but there, it, there, there's certain, uh, certainly a rush uh, in trying to find uh, a vaccine that will work. And so this is a rapidly uh, developing area um, and probably on a weekly basis, we'll hear more news about it. Uh, but I would not expect to see uh, a, a usable vaccine yet in uh, 2020. While we're talking about vaccines, let me also take a mention um, about other medical treatments uh, that are being proposed for the novel coronavirus. As you know, there are no uh, medication currently indicated for treatment, but there are several under investigation, and uh, the World Health Organization has just this past week uh, initiated a, a trial called the Solidarity Trial. And this is a, a WHO-sponsored protocol involving multiple countries with a very simple design to um, allow for uh, many uh, health systems to be able to participate. And they're uh, going to be looking at four uh, different medications. One is um, uh, an antiviral drug uh, called uh, remdesivir, which is, um, has shown activity against the SARS-CoV-2 virus in vitro and other coronaviruses. Um, the second one is, is using a, um, um, a combination treatment that's been used for HIV uh, with or without interferon beta. Uh, and the third one, third, that would be number two and three. And the, the fourth one is the use of uh, chloroquine or hydrochloroquine. Hydrochloroquine um, is being tested in China and has shown some activity against the uh, novel coronavirus. Uh, and the interesting thing about this is that um, the way this works, it really is a, uh, what we call an ionophore, which is it opens the, um, the 
pathogen within the cell to allow zinc to enter in. And so uh, the zinc itself is toxic to the viruses, but uh, the chloroquine uh, make the zinc be available to the cells. Um, and so this is a very interesting um, uh, concept that is being studied. So I think that probably within a few months, we'll actually see some results from these studies and cross our fingers and have a little hope that there will be an opportunity to uh, try uh, medical treatment against the, the, the folk that are sickest with this uh, novel coronavirus. There's been a lot of talk about being able to have these test kits for corona uh, readily available for the most susceptible patients. We've heard that there, there are the nasal pharyngeal testings as well as the rapid diagnostic testings. Can you tell us a little bit about what the test entails and, and what the differences are? Sure. Um, let, me, let me first uh, say that, you know, they're, um, they're the natural sort of uh, progression that occurs in a, in a situation like this uh, when testing becomes available. Um, so, for example, where I live in Michigan, we've almost doubled the number of cases um, in the past two days that have been reported here uh, from about 250 to 500 something. And, and the, um, the reason for that is not because the, the, the pandemic is so much worse. It, it's simply that the testing became available and we were able to um, identify and confirm um, a number of people who are already infected. So. Um, I think we'll be seeing that over the next couple of weeks that there will be a, a rapid increase in the reported cases, not so much because there are more people sick, but because we're actually putting a name on it um, with the testing. So that's a, a little side note about the testing, but now that it's becoming much more available, um, it will be used much more. Um, but let me say something about who it should be used for. The, um, the um, a testing is a diagnostic test, and it's important to understand that it's not a screening test. It's not designed uh, to detect early disease in somebody who may be just, uh, just getting started with the virus, for example. Um, and it is designed to confirm the, the presence of the virus uh, in, with, uh, in a person who's already having symptoms. And so the, the CDC and others have, have recommended that testing be limited to people who we think have the virus based on clinical evaluation with fever, cough, uh, maybe an x-ray showing changes in their lung. Um, and that, uh, the test is really confirmatory. Um, so there are some uh, rapid diagnostic tests that are becoming available that um, at the point of care. And those um, will still need to have confirmatory testing on done on them, but they can be helpful again in uh, early detection of people who are already symptomatic so that, so that they can be uh, properly isolated. Then uh, you might ask, you know, well, why shouldn't we be testing people who aren't sick yet? And maybe we can help keep them from getting sick. Or say you're in a high risk environment like a nursing home. Uh, should we be testing everybody because we know that if they get sick, they'll uh, very uh, quickly go downhill. Well, again, the, the test itself is, is not designed as a screening test. Uh, now, they may come out with a screening test that will be useful for that. Um, but the, the concept behind screening is that you want a test that's very, very sensitive uh, so that you don't miss anybody who had the early disease. The concept behind diagnosis is that you want a test that's very specific so that you, 
uh, are concerned that uh, you, you have made the right diagnosis. So, Dr. Champ, you mentioned and referenced specificity as well as sensitivity. Can you speak to what percentages should be we be looking for as we're getting more and more test kits on the market and making sure that we're not producing a lot of these results that are false negatives or even false positives? Um, that's a hard question, Farah. I think, um, you know, there was a, a the myth depth uh, early on with the CDC when they uh, promoted them tests and sent them out to the states um, uh, for point of care testing, and they had not gone through uh, all the rigorous uh, uh, evaluation that they need to. And those, um, those were, they got very inconsistent results. And so um, you have to be careful about that. There's been, and because of the um, e- emergency uh, that we're facing, uh, the, the typical processes for approving what tests can be uh, used in a public setting have been um, relaxed. And so um, there are a number of test kits out there that uh, may or may not have met the same rigorous evaluations uh, that we are accustomed to. Um, having said that, um, the, the technology behind uh, the, the standard testing at molecular level is, is really pretty straightforward. And uh, if, it, if they're using that technology with a reputable company, uh, there's a good reason to suspect that the, the test should be accurate. Um, and what I was trying to say earlier uh, about specificity and sensitivity um, is that for a test to be useful at ruling out a disease, or what we would call a screening situation, it has to have a very high sensitivity so that it can be uh, able to detect even a small amount of the virus. Um, but a, for a test to be specific, uh, which is what we do when we want to confirm a diagnosis, uh, then you want a high degree of specificity. So these tend to have a trade-off. Um, the more specific tend to be less sensitive uh, in almost any type of diagnostic testing. Um, but cur- the current test that we have available now for the COVID-19 uh, virus uh, have aimed at the high specificity rate, and none of them have been approved for screening. I'm sure that some of them are in the works, uh, and I'm sure we will see screening tests probably at some point, but um, uh, that's not currently the case. So, for example, there are no screening tests for influenza, right? Um, that they... It's a very specific test. Um, so I think we'll be seeing um, screening tests uh, with something like it, a uh, much more rapid point of care testing for the COVID virus at, at some point within the next few weeks. Excellent. And we know that there is a lot of um, not only the kits that the, the pharmacist or other healthcare providers need to, um, to wear to protect themselves, but um, and at this rate, a lot of them aren't really stocked with the right amount of equipment, needing the N5 ma- uh, masks as well as goggles. And, and clearly, this is a, a, a virus that we're know, we know is highly contagious and so needs an additional set of PPEs that our, our pharmacies need to get in, in hand before doing these kits or testing procedures. Well, you bring up a good point. It, uh, well, I think that it can be very valuable for pharmacists to have on-site testing or drive-through testing. Um, there are uh, just a ton of uh, precautions that have to be uh, taken in that case in terms of uh, their staff training and then proper protection equipment, hazardous waste disposal, 
uh, all kinds of uh, processes where they make sure that they have a proper identification of people, um, that they have been uh, screened adequately to make sure that they're eligible for the test. It's a very involved uh, process, but it'd be a wonderful public service. Absolutely. And it, it has been quite humbling to see the responses that we've gotten for our community pharmacies raising their hands and saying that they would love to continue serving their community and being front lines of, of doing these screenings and testings for, um, for their patients. You know, I know within the, the hospital, Dr. Shamp, that you had strict protocols of, of how to approach um, presumed patients that have highly contagious uh, disease states. And in this situation, um, the pharmacists are dealing with patients day in, day out, and, and don't have necessarily the precautionary measures or the organization to act as swiftly. What advice would you give our pharmacists in protecting themselves and their staffs um, on this COVID-19? You know, that's a question I, that uh, probably deserved a lot more thought and a lot more discussion. Um, because the, uh, uh, the pharmacy, uh, which has... Uh, variably over the years, taken on more of a retail uh, environment, but is now also um, becoming a, a place where people come for health care. Um, so you have this mix and um, of purposes of why people are there. Uh, and it's certainly, a, a, it, it can be a magnet for people who are sick, right? That's why they're there. Uh, and so how to, how to protect uh, uh, other people in the store how to, or in the pharmacy, how to protect the, the pharmacy staff becomes uh, uh, paramount without trying to get too invasive uh, or paternalistic about it. Um, but I think that in a, in a pandemic situation like this, they would be very legitimate uh, for pharmacy staff to um, put some parameters around who uh, actually enters their environment um, and under what guidelines, they, uh, what parameters they would do that. Um, so, um, I don't know what that would look like. You don't want to stand to, at the door and keep people out. But, um, for example, if somebody had a fever, um, perhaps somebody at the, at the door could help, help them get what they needed without them, uh, coming in or some other method of where they come in and they're, uh, assisted, uh, to, to get, to complete their business, um, or to pick up a prescription. Uh, the drive-through is obviously a, a, a good answer for that, um, but there's a very good reason why people are not getting uh, tested in the stores and while they're doing drive-through because they don't want them in the stores, right? Absolutely, and it's 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 been fascinating to see how pharmacists have been so adaptable to this um, new workflow. Let's say by for those who have drive-throughs just operating the drive-through onlys, and and those who don't have drive-throughs. Um, creating a texting platform where they can go back and forth with one another to let them know they're outside for curbside pickup so that the patients aren't coming in the pharmacy and exposing them to unnecessary pathogens. Well, and a related issue would be uh, personal protective equipment for the pharmacy and, and their staff. Um, you know, they're, currently, we're having trouble getting uh, the types of masks that are necessary um, gowns or uh, I think gloves are in good supply, but uh, how, how to go about protecting staff who know they're going to be interacting with people who are, uh, are sick and could have the, um, the coronavirus. So um, 
getting putting pharmacies on the same priority as other healthcare facilities for being able to get that type of equipment uh, would be uh, a step in the right direction from a policy perspective. I think that you bring up a lot of great points, Dr. Champ. We need to make sure as we're taking care of our patients and our community that we're pausing and taking care of our staff and ourselves. So please make sure that we are taking those extra precautionary measures of extra sanitation, uh, cleaning down things, hand washing, to ensure that we are in fact make, protecting our frontline service and healthcare providers. Now, in the in the incidents and in the unfortunate incidents, so I suspect that one of my staff members or one of my staff members does po- um, test positive for COVID nineteen. What what actions or what would you say are the next best steps in in discovering this? That can be a very challenging uh, situation for a pharmacist uh, or pharmacy staff. If, if somebody shows up to work and uh, and they're getting sick, um, then obviously uh, in that setting, you're going to send them home. But what happens if three days later, you find out that uh, they went home and got worse, went to the doctors and was tested, and now they have uh, COVID-19. And three days earlier, they were in their, working in their pharmacy. Um, what do you do? That would be a nightmare for me as a pharmacist, uh, because at that point, uh, the CDC guidelines say that if, if you have a, a person with known uh, or just, uh, suspected, a person under investigation for uh, the COVID-19, um, then for 14 days prior to that, I uh, need to assess who had uh, close contact with them. Um, and close contact would be uh, either direct physical contact or uh, contact with the uh, secretions if they're coughing or sneezing, uh, or even just being in the same closed space with them uh, for in the period of time, uh, say over two hours, or uh, within six feet of them um, for over 15 minutes. So that, that type of close contact uh, creates a, a risk environment uh, that would put them in the, at least the medium risk category. Uh, and that medium risk category would generally uh, uh, require that it, uh, an, another employee who is exposed to that infected person would then uh, need to uh, go home, basically, and self-quarantine. It uh, doesn't mean that they're going to get sick, uh, but it does mean that they have a, a significant risk of uh, contracting the virus and uh, passing it on to others even before uh, they know that they're sick. And so the, the uh, recommendation is uh, for self-quarantine at that point, uh, or at least not being in a, in a public environment where you can be um, practicing social distancing uh, at home. I think that... The, the incubation period of being asymptomatic or just being asymptomatic generally is what causes pause in a lot of people of, of a shock and awe of essentially of, of exposure. And I think that's where we're going to see some of these um, incidences of transmission are, are those who are in that the first couple weeks of, of asymptomness and then going into work and then possibly passing it along to others. Yep, that's right. Um... The, uh, in, the infectivity of the coronavirus uh, happened to coincide with the peak of illness, uh, but it can be infective uh, very early, even before they develop symptoms. And I think that's what 
makes it the management of it so difficult and, and why we, again, social distancing is just a general best practice for everybody. That's right. Um, it, it's hard to overemphasize how valuable uh, social distancing can be in, in, in controlling this pandemic. And I don't want to get into uh, you know, the apocalyptic type of uh, conversation here. Um, but the, uh, the, imp- the positive impact of social distancing has been modeled out, and it is very significant uh, in terms of uh, dealing with, for example, that we have, we have a hard limits of how many intensive care beds there are in the country um, and how many uh, ventilators there are. Uh, and we will far surpass that uh, if, the, if the current models are not um, uh, mitigated uh, uh, with act- actions like social, social distancing. So I think it, it, uh, this has been uh, pretty reliably modeled out and nobody can predict the future. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a strong public argument, a strong scientific argument, a strong mathematical argument uh, for the social distancing. Well, we heard Governor Gavin Newsom here in California, where we're based um, out of, give a very strong order by um, by essentially mandating social distancing and, and, and hopes of, we hear this often, flattening the curve. And um, we've taken great measures so that um, we were able to prevent the spread of it as early on as we can. Dr. Champ, you've been incredibly insightful, and I appreciate all the time. The, the information and the resources you're able to provide for us are much needed in this ever-evolving uh, world that we're in right now. Any final remarks for our pharmacists or other healthcare providers that are listening in? Well, I just want to thank you, Farah, for inviting me on the podcast today and the opportunity to try to help provide um, your pharmacists uh, and others with uh, reliable information that they can use in their very important mission uh, is in helping the uh, healthcare needs of their uh, of their patients that come to them. Uh, you're doing very important work, and I'm very glad to be part of it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Dr. Champ, and thank you all who are listening in. Thank you to our community pharmacists who are tirelessly working and, and taking care of their patients. Remember, you are a critical component of, of patient care, and we are so thankful for everything that you're doing. I'm humbled and signing off. Thank you all so much for joining in. Mm-hmm.